Okay, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, please? Matthew chapter 5. As you turn there, please remember that this Sunday is our 12th year anniversary. Did you guys remember that? But it's 12 years, we're combining all three of our services. That's the 8.30 service, the 10 o'clock service, and the 12 o'clock service to one 10 o'clock service. From 10, it's gonna go a little longer. We actually do about hour and a half services with those three. This one's gonna be about a two hour to two and a half hour service. For one day a year, we're gonna be real Kenyans, an African church, and do a long service. Um, it's, it's something we started one year ago. The heart behind these type of events that we always have, we have so many events at our church. Um, we have the Christmas event that we just had. It was just an incredible time. The most exciting part is that 20, 30 people stood on their feet to confess Jesus Christ as their Lord. Um, I am... If you don't know me well, I'm one of the most unceremonial guys you could ever meet. Um, I, I, I don't do well with ceremonies, um, with events in terms of birthdays, anniversaries. I have to really put my heart and mind towards, you know, thinking about all my kids' birthdays, and I want them to make, I want them to feel special, but. I guess one of the goals is to make my children and wife feel so special that they don't mind too much when they don't get lavished on their birthday. I hope you get the point. Um, so that's, we, we've never done these anniversaries. I never saw the point in having a one-year anniversary when I didn't know if our church was going to last two years. After one year, we weren't even a church yet. I would encourage you guys to study um, that ecclesiology chart that we have in the lobby. Understand what it is. Look up all the scriptures on it. There's probably a well over a, a dozen scriptures just on that one chart. And a church is, um, as the New Testament defines it in a summary, is pastors, elders, and deacons that oversee corporate prayer, corporate Bible study, corporate fellowship with the ordinances of baptism communion. If you're missing one of those, you don't have a church. So we didn't have a church for the first couple of years, though we're calling it our 12th year. Sure, we were meeting on Thursdays. This was our first service, by the way, was our Thursday meeting. I, I did that so because... I, in my mind, everybody in the world had midweek studies on Wednesday. So I put our first service on Thursday so that we could, um, I could spy out the land, as it were, of the Kenyan churches. So on Wednesday, I started going out and I wanted to spy the churches. I wanted to see what kind of doctrine the Kenyan church was preaching. Only to discover Kenyan churches do not have midweek services. They have Sunday services and they go all day for many of them. But we kept this service. This is our longest standing service. <clears throat> and as I studied the scripture, I realized that if we're not doing 
baptism, we're not a church. If we don't have pastors, elders, and deacons that are called by God, raised up by God, we're not a church. And so that's why, but as we've progressed by the grace and mercy of God, we have seen ourselves for many years now, a church with many people born again. One of the deepest prayers I had, I think it was the single greatest prayer I had for our church when we started was that we would not be a church transplant, that God's spirit would move um, through the power of the gospel and people would be saved and we would... Uh, people from other churches are welcome and we love them. There's many people in this town that need to leave their church and need to find a good church. But uh, the Lord answered our prayers. And after, after about four or five years, I don't know the numbers. We've never kept track. I was telling Billy earlier, I think in the last six years, we could say three to 4,000 people have have confess Jesus Christ. Whether they're born again or not is between what the Lord knows, but stood on their feet just Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, people getting born again. And it's a, it's, it's a real blessing to see what the Lord has done. But this event, as much as we are celebrating in the same way that we were the Christmas, for me, and I know for the Lord and, and many, this is another opportunity for people to be invited here to be born again. It's another opportunity, and we should do that. So this Sunday, um, and then after our service, we'll have lunch together with a H. pylori free beef fry. Matthew chapter five. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth but if salt loses its flavor how shall it be seasoned? Is it then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men? You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand it gives light to all who are in the house. 
Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whosoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard it said before of old, you were... You shall not murder. Whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of counsel. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there uh, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversaries quickly while you're on the way with him. Least your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown in prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out there till you have paid the last penny. You've heard it said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you than one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. I want to keep reading, but oddly enough, in all the verses I just read, we're not going to get past the first beatitude today, though I want to discuss the entire Sermon on the Mount um, in in, an extreme summary fashion. The Sermon on the Mount is... It's infinite, really, as the Bible is. These are the words of Christ, giving the greatest sermon that has ever been given, not because of the way he said it, not because of the intonations of his voice, not because of the Greek oratory of the day. If you've ever heard people say, you've heard many good pastors even say that Paul wasn't a good public speaker, that is... Um, as described in First uh, and Second Corinthians, Paul would say his countenance is not pleasant. There are um, ancient kind of beliefs that we get from extra writings that Paul possibly had a stutter, and his speech is contemptible. Um, they, they would say, and that, that's where some of the rumors he get. I don't believe I- any of that. There was a way of speaking during that time that was very popular um, by the Greeks uh, who would speak this way. The Romans learned how to speak this way. It, it was essentially 
a, a way to flow that made you extremely good at oratory. You, you, would, you would speak in a way, um, some with rhyme, but more importantly, that Greek oratory was connecting thoughts and building on them in such a way that, that made you look extremely um, intelligent. And many of them were, but more so it was the style that made you look intelligent. And it required an, an immense amount of preparation. An immense amount. You're talking about to deliver a 30-minute address or a two-hour address, which was customary to the Greeks back then. It could be three hours. You could prepare 100 hours, 200 hours. These guys would do that. They would craft every single word to make it flawless and perfect. That's not necessarily bad. I believe that's what was going on when the Apostle Paul had mentioned the rumors about him that his speech was contemptible. That he wasn't speaking with that powerful oratory that was being uh, taught in schools around the Roman world. Um, it is speculative, but likely that a Apollos mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1 is he is a powerful speaker that he adopted that um, method of oratory and he was very powerful and, and very good at that specific kind and was very learned in it. I have a point to this and it's important. So follow me. And that's, that could be what was being discussed is, is Apollos is powerful. His preaching. I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos, I'm of these people. And Apollos was this powerful oratory with the kind of oratory that was being taught that was seamless and flawless. It's not evil. Nothing wrong with really good oratory. There are men of God who have adopted such oratory. One of them would be uh, Charles Spurgeon. But Charles Spurgeon never depended upon that kind of style as much as speaking truth. I believe the Apostle Paul was a brilliant speaker. And how could he not be if he was quoting the book of Romans when he spoke at the churches? When he was teaching what the Holy Spirit had inspired him to write when he wrote Ephesians. Brilliant, utterly brilliant. And this is the point. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they say when he, Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. It wasn't how Jesus Christ said it. It wasn't the, the decibel of volumes going in the intonation of his voice that captured the people. That's not what did it. You know, the other day I, I was at my house, which is just behind the church here, really, and there was some sort of revival going on. 
um, I think in Teleview. So they, you know what they do with the revival, they pitch the tent and, and then there is a preacher who's, who began preaching. And guys, it, it was so painful to listen to that I would have rather put ugali in my ears and eat that same ugali afterwards than listen to it. Now, I couldn't understand what he was saying, but he was, yeah. You know that what has become a very common practice here in East Africa. And they, and you guys have heard me joke around about that, but in, in a serious manner, they believe that's the power of God. That that man is anointed. They use the word, he's anointed. So he goes around and he preaches such a way. The anointing has nothing to do with the sound of our voice. The anointing has everything to do with the truth that we speak. That is, and every single person who is born again has the anointing. When, and you are, I, I hate to use this word, let me use a better word than activate. You were walking in the anointing that you already have as a Christian when you speak truth. Every one of you. I don't have any special anointing over you. Jesus Christ, in the manner that he would have spoke, according to their Jewish customs, went up on the mountain and he probably sat down. And he spoke clearly, yet raised his voice enough to where the multitudes could hear him, but simply. And they would have been standing and he would have been sitting. And they listened to these words. Do you know that in the Sermon on the Mount, I counted it before, I'm forgetting, over 10 times he says, do not be like the scribes and the Pharisees, or in similar fashion, the scribes and the Pharisees say this, but I say this. And Jesus Christ, he's not bringing new truth. If it's new, it isn't true, okay? If it's new, it isn't true. And there's an, do you guys know that there's a religion starting up almost every day of the year? There's a new religion, I just um, was listening to uh, a, a documentary on a, a guy that was a, a childhood actor that I watched growing up. He started a new religion in California. Just new religions all the time. The authority that we have is the authority of Scripture. Jesus Christ comes and he gives clarification on another sermon given on another mount, the sermon that Moses gave on Mount Sinai, when he received the Ten Commandments, they actually began a religion that was different than what God was trying to start amongst them with his people, the nation of Israel, called Judaism, that made the Jews believe that they could be right with God with what they do. So they receive the Ten Commandments, which are good and should be obeyed, and they created an interpretation of those commandments that would allow them 
to be right with God would allow them to accomplish obedience to those Ten Commandments. Jesus comes along and he says, you guys, you got it, you got it all wrong. These weren't supposed to be, or excuse me, these weren't, uh, they, were, they are supposed to be obeyed, but it's impossible for you to obey them. Because you've said it, you've heard it said of old. Where's he talking about of old? All the way back to Moses. Not to commit adultery, not to murder. But I say to you that all of you are guilty of it already. And guess what? No murderer will enter the kingdom of heaven. No adulterer will enter the kingdom of heaven. No fornicator will enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to be covered of your adulteries. You have to be washed of your fornications and murders by the blood of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And, and, and he comes along and he destroys so much of what has been passed down through wrong interpretations with truth. That is the power. Truth. It's the most powerful thing. To, to expound on this, when we'd studied a few weeks ago, and I know we're taking a break from the Old Testament tonight, because this Sunday we're going to go back to Matthew 7. It's the same portion of scripture that I taught the first service we had in this building. Many will say to me on, on that day, Lord, Lord, I figured it'd be necessary again to teach that scary scripture on Sunday. But when we were talking about the salt of the earth, you know, we've heard many great sermons on that, especially if you've gone online and listened to good pastors preach them. But understand, if you want to get the most specific thing that Jesus is talking about with being salt and light, it is proclaiming truth. That's how we're salt and light. It, it, it's not going out and getting along with everybody. Kindness without courage is worthless. And so we adopt, well, we got to be salt and light. That means we got to preserve the situation. Let's just make everybody happy. We we adopt these Christian ideals that aren't Christian at all. And, and, and you, know, you know what's going on right now with our church. We're, we studied last Sunday, Ezekiel 38. Who was there for that teaching? Most of you. And if you guys weren't there, go back and listen to it because you may have never heard Ezekiel 38 in Kenya before in your life. It's, a, it's astounding. And... They're posting online about me saying horns are growing out of my head when I preach on this pulpit because I said we stand with Israel. And I got pastors that are not part of heretical churches, they're, they're, they're decent churches to be like, they seriously, the, the impression I get from them, and I've even had this happen, is they're like whispering it to me. We stand with Israel too. It's like, why don't you talk a little louder? Have you said it from the pulpit? And the prince and the power of the air that Ephesians 2 is talking about is working in the sons of disobedience. And, and, and now he's shaking up the tree of the church 
Well, God is, and Satan is trying to plant the tares, and they're all amongst us. They're all amongst us, even in our churches. People who hate Israel. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a Christian hating Israel? It's insane. All you can do is look at the person and be like, the only thing we can do right now is pray for you because the prince and power of darkness is in your mind. That's the only conclusion. To, re- to give truth to him who loves it not gives a multiplied reasons of misinterpretation. The insanity of trying to reason with an insane person makes me feel insane. And we're still looking for that Israeli flag. Preston, did you get it printed yet? Let's get that tomorrow. I'm starting to think you stand against Israel too, Preston. <laughs> I'm kidding. He has an Israel, Israeli flag on his WhatsApp. He was one of the first ones. My point is not to deviate. This is the point. Salt and light is speaking truth. Speaking truth. That's where the power lies, is to proclaim truth. For example, again, on this point of the power of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount and what he's specifically talking about being salt and light. It's not coming in with this soft voice as a man, oh, well, let's just, let's just all take a moment and let's all breathe. What's going on? Let's, let's have some conflict resolution here. There is going to be no resolution with somebody who with me who hates Jesus Christ until they get born again. Kindness without courage is worthless. In fact, it's not kindness at all. So when the Bible talks about on this issue of the power of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, and then I want to go to the Beatitude and we'll spend the rest of our time but, but understand this point, because it was the main point that we talked about when we uh, did Sunday morning, uh, verses 13 through 16, chapter 5. It's the same point that Jesus Christ is making in Matthew 28. It's the same command when he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. It, it, it's one of my favorite portions of scriptures, but if, once again, if you could talk about 100 things on how to be salt and light, you could talk about 1,000 things on how to be salt and light, you can talk about 2,000 things and ways of discipleship uh, according to the command we received in Matthew 28, but it means one thing. And there are many good things. That's fine. But many people disciple in different ways. But, 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 but God isn't, Jesus Christ, our Lord, isn't saying in Matthew 28, just make disciples. I know many of you are going to do it in different ways as long as you're just loving people. No, no. Jesus Christ says you disciple people with the word of God. And the greatest form of discipleship since Jesus said those words in Matthew 28 is on the Lord's Day, Sunday morning for 2,000 years, the church has been taught the word of God. That's the discipleship that Jesus wanted done. That's why he said, 
teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. That is the meaning that Jesus meant for us to understand in Matthew 28. That is the meaning on which he wants us to understand about being salt and light. And that is the reason why the crowds at the end is like he has authority because he speaks one as one as having authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees who are politically just back and forth on all what they believe in. He speaks truth. That's why this sermon is so powerful, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, to speak truth means that you speak truth that is more than just talking about the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection. A lot of people, and I know this is, is true based on the conversation I have and based on statistics that people have written, is that that people believe that evangelism is just talking about the cross, burial, and resurrection. Evangelism is talking about anything that the word of God is talking about. You know one of the greatest ways to bring people to Christ? Talk about Ezekiel 38. Why? Because Jesus can tell the end from the beginning. He transcends time and he says, these nations are attacking Israel. Use that in evangelism and see what people say. It's like, how can you escape, once you explain it, the details of that prophecy? How can you escape the details of the Daniel 9 prophecy, which we're going to go through before we get back to our study in Romans? Evangelizing is speaking on the truth of everything that the word of God has spoken on. It's having the scriptures flow from your mouth all the time. That is where the power lies. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's the word of God. It's going to cut right to somebody's heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This is the first beatitude, not amongst a bunch of beatitudes that are equal to it. This is the foundational beatitude. If this beatitude does not exist in the arsenal of you trying to apply the others like mourning, like being merciful, like seeking and hungering and thirsting after righteousness, you can try all you want and you will not be merciful and you will not uh, acquire uh, righteousness even if you think you're going to seek. You won't get any of the other Beatitudes right if you don't get this one right. This is the foundation. You could say that this is the only beatitude and the rest of them are being built on the foundation of this one that is poor in spirit. In other words, if you do not have a correct evaluation of yourself, if you do not have an understanding of who you are, you will not seek after righteousness because you don't have a great understanding of your unrighteousness. 
If you're not poor in spirit, you're not going to mourn over your sin because you've never had a revelation of your sin. You're not going to mourn over the sin of others because you don't have a revelation of their sin. You're not going to be persecuted if you're not poor in spirit. You're not going to be pure in heart if you're not poor in spirit. This is the foundation. I normally don't do this, but I want to read several excerpts from this book because it's just one of those books you come across every few years. It's a modern book written by Dane Ortland, who I, he's become one of my favorite authors. And reading it, it jumps off the pages so powerfully that I think he'll do a better job at explaining it, or at least he had the time to think about it before extemporaneously talking about it in front of a couple people. He says, James 4.9 says, you know, um, let your laughter be turned into mourning. What does that mean? Why does the Bible do this? Does God want us feeling bad about ourselves always? Is he eager to chop us down to size to lower the ceiling of our joy lest we be too happy? Not at all. It is because of God's very desire for us to be happy and joy, joy, joyless, not joyless, joyful, filled to overflowing with uproarious cheer of heaven itself that these things must be done, that we must mourn, that we must be brought down. For he is sending us down into honesty and sanity. He wants us to see our sickness so we can run to the doctor. He wants us to get healed. Do you remember when the scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus Christ? It's this bewildering passage when you first read it. And, and they say, why are you eating with tax collectors, publicans, and sinners? Why do you do this? And Jesus says, the righteous don't need me. I've come for the sick, for the unrighteous. You know, if we were there, we would have been like, how dare you think you're better than these people? You think you're righteous and they're unrighteous. There is none righteous, no, not one. In fact, that's what the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write in Romans. Now, on that occasion, Jesus Christ doesn't do that. Later on, he would stand against the Pharisees and he would call them wicked. But what Jesus Christ is trying to get them to understand and us to understand is, if you believe you're righteous, you have no need of Christ. You have no need for the righteous one when you are already righteous yourself. The author writes, most insidious of all, our minds and hearts have been infected. We crave the forbidden, we celebrate others' misfortune, we hoard rather than give. In short, we construct our entire lives around ourselves. We are poor in spirit because we are wicked in nature. The great British preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, 
And by the way, to, to, to further the point of the night, there's two major points. The word of God carries power. The truth carries power. That's the most powerful thing. And you must realize how terribly wicked you are. Not to be self-deprecating, but so that Christ can be exalted in your heart and mind and not yourself any longer. I was just at where Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching. I got the privilege to preach in Oxford, England, but while we were near London, we went into Westminster Abbey, this massive edifice of a church. Just a few short years ago in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching there, and it was filled to capacity when the word of God was spoken. Now you have lesbians giving communion, and it is empty and without Christ. It's the word of God that carries power. But while he was there, he would preach such things like this. Martin Lloyd-Jones says these words. You will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always defend yourself against others. In other words, we are on very good terms with ourselves. Do you get what he's saying? Do you know who was on best terms with you? you just, I just read it. Take a guess. You. You were the most righteous. As soon as somebody does something against you, you will immediately defend yourself. It is our fleshly nature to make everybody else out to be wrong and us be right because we know the intentions of our heart. I may have said this a few times before, I get weary of people telling me the intentions of their heart. It wasn't my intentions to rob you. I don't know why I did it. And you're sitting there like, I don't care about your intentions. You robbed me. It wasn't my intentions to punch you in the face. But my fist has a mind of his own. But my heart loves you. Listen, guys, you understand that your hearts are, our hearts are wicked. They're wicked. You do not have good intentions apart from Christ living in you. In us, that is in the flesh, dwells no good thing. Stop talking about your good intentions. He says, it's like we have a disease, one symptom of which feels very healthy, and this is why the Bible speaks of sinfulness as deceitful very often. It's like the drug addict who went from 190 pounds to 130 pounds because of crack or meth or heroin or alcohol, and he still looks in the mirror and is like, man, I still got it. I'm looking good. When everybody else can see the bag of bones that he or she is. The author goes on to write, one reason some Christians um, remain shallow their whole Christian lives because they do not allow themselves ever more deeply throughout their lives 
to pass through the painful corridor and honesty about who they really are. Isn't that good? It's so good I need to read it again because some of you are like, what time is lunch on Sunday? Listen, one reason some Christians remain shallow, and I think we could all agree that many Christians in the church all around the world have a very small faith, very small commitment. One of the reasons Christians remain shallow their whole lives is they do not allow themselves ever more deeply throughout their lives to pass through the painful, painful corridor of honesty about who they really are. I want to make a bold statement here. You can never grow in Christ or in the fulfillment of these other Beatitudes unless you have passed through the painful honesty about who you are and that is wicked. He says, I never met a deep Christian who did not have a correspondingly deep sense of their own natural desolation. Did you get that? We will not grow, not deeply anyway, except by going through the painful death of being honest about our own spiritual bankruptcy. Have you been brought to despair of what you're able to achieve in the spirit? Have you been brought to despair about what you're able to achieve in sanctification? If not, have the courage to look yourself squarely in the mirror, repent, see your profound poverty, ask the Lord to forgive your arrogance, and as you descend down into the death of who you are, into the knowledge of the futility of the inner wickedness you have, and the dismay of your own efforts to be right with God, there, right there, in the emptiness of who you are, is where God dwells. I want to put this to words. I don't know how to do it yet. But it is a song that a guy by the name of John Newton wrote. Do you remember John Newton? He wrote, Amazing Grace, thank you. He wrote this song. Please try to pay attention to the words. I know they can get a little confusing. This was a song that he wrote. This is what they used to sing during his day after he wrote it. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and ever grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Seek after righteousness and you'll be filled. I added that. That was the scripture, not the song. Going on with the song. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, answers prayer, but it has been in such a way and almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favorite hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, God brought me low 
and made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed to intend to aggravate my woes, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why do you do this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue this worm to death? Tis in this way the Lord replied, and he said, I answer prayers of faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break the schemes of earthly joy that thou may find this your all in me. We don't write songs like that anymore, do we? Do you get what he's saying? The Lord had to show me who I am before I could ever see his greatness, his righteousness, his majesty. And he was tormented because of who he was. So the whole point of James that this author is referencing, why do we mourn? Does the Lord want us to be unhappy? No. It's because of happiness itself that we must see who we really are in order to see Christ well up in our inward man and then we are never so happy as when Christ is present with us or when, he, uh, when we sense his presence. The, to be poor in spirit, guys, this is, this is one of the biggest steps you can ever take to being in the presence of Christ because Christ is, can, cannot be felt. You cannot be in the presence of Christ, so to speak, when you're arrogant, when you're self-righteous, when we're prideful. This first beatitude is absolutely necessary for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We cannot see God without recognizing who we really are. Now notice that the scripture is not saying to go commit unrighteousness in order to receive and know God's grace. It's saying to identify with who you currently are and have always been already unrighteous and wicked. I hope that you can, if you've not already done this, make it a practice of seeing yourself often in contrast to Jesus Christ who is in you or the Holy Spirit's in you and they have identical natures. That's why Christ said, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Christ is with us, not that he's the same person of the Godhead, but because the Holy Spirit who is in us has the identical nature of Jesus Christ. They're perfect. So in that sense, Christ is with us. But listen, have, have you guys... Do, do you see the war going on when the, the, the nature of God in you shines the light on who you are? And you can just sit there and go, oh. 
That's embarrassing. That is truly embarrassing. I got that wrong? I said that? That's not from you. I believe that about myself? Oh, that's not an accurate view of who I am. And it's not so that we walk around being like, oh my gosh, I'm so bad. I'm so terrible. That's, that's not the point. The point is when you see the nature of Christ in contrast of the wicked flesh that is you and me, you say, oh, he's so beautiful. He's, he is amazing. Oh, that's the way you think? That's what you would have said? That's perfect. That's what you would have done. That would have been awesome if I would have done that. And, and it's, it wells up in you the joy of the Lord. Because in his presence is the fullness of joy. So the whole point is not to make us self-deprecating and loathing. And just... <laughs> because then we're not seeing the whole point. And the point is to see Christ for who he is. But if you think you're like him, you'll just see yourself. Because he stands alone, ladies and gentlemen. There's no one like him. The collective goodness of all of mankind does not compare to one hour of Jesus' life on earth. Not one minute. His righteousness is beautiful. It's love. It's It's courage. It's justice, it's amazing. The whole point of, the whole point of recognizing our poverty in spirit is to see the glory of Jesus Christ and to ever more deeply love him and follow after him, who is the only person who's ever been worthy of our attention. But unfortunately, we're so often deceived with focusing on ourselves. It's sad. It's a sad life that thinks about himself or herself all day long. That's why so many of us are depressed. You just thought about yourself all day. You go, you go to bed depressed again. Man, guys, if I think about myself for, you know, which I, unfortunately is often the case, it's just a sad day until you're reminded of who Christ is. And then it's a glad day. That's the point of being poor in spirit. It's to identify who humanity really is, especially you. And in that, Christ emerges with the glory of his nature. It's very important. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, it, 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 you, could, you, could, you could do so much in it. In, in Matthew 7, when it says, judge not, least you be judged for what judgment you cast is what judgment you meet. It's not saying not to judge. Remember, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is to judge accurately. That's the whole point. God is not commanding us not to judge. It's one of the most famous scriptures that unbelievers know and they don't know where it is or what it's actually talking about. Don't judge me, man. When Jesus Christ says don't judge, he says don't judge this way. Don't judge as if some of you humans are better and more righteous than others. 
in terms of salvation, you all need God. And when you realize how terribly wicked you are and that all of you are in the same camp, you're going to start judging with a plank out of your eye with a lot more grace and a lot more mercy and a lot more kindness. There are four twos. I'll talk about this on Sunday. There are four twos in Matthew 7. There are two standards, God's standard and man's standard. Man's standards makes people better and worse. So you look at people who are better than you and you're like, they're so righteous. I remember years ago I was, I was battling with lust and I used to listen to Ravi Zacharias all the time and I was battling with lust, guys. My heart, bad. And I was listening to Ravi one day when I was driving to Nairobi and I'm like, I, I bet he, has, he doesn't battle with lust ever. <laughs> I used to think that. And then all this come out about his struggles with lust, obviously. Well, why was I looking at Ravi? Why wasn't I looking at Christ? I was, I was making a bad judgment. I was looking at man, judging according to man's ways, and I felt very low. Or if I look at people who, that I think I'm better than. And, and, and you've, you've heard this preaching before. It's like, we, when we can relate to people's sins, we're very gracious. When we can't, we're very ungracious and unkind. I get really angry with thieves. It's not something I struggled with growing up. For somebody to come and steal a man's hard earned money or tools or things. Guys, I can't tell you how angry I get. I, I'm dealing with this, if I can be vulnerable and transparent for a moment with this guy who's building our water tower. I guess I can tell you this. He's not, he's not been around, he's been lying to us. He has a lot of money of ours worth of equipment. For this... The second time in, in 17 years of salvation, today, I thought about, her, I, I've, been, I've been fantasizing over hurting somebody. Two times. First time was when uh, we were robbed uh, in Pioneer with uh, a lease agreement we had. And today, and, and guys... You know, I had a, a past, you know, Billy was earlier talking about a violent past. I was like a caged dog beat up by my members of my family and, and their friends until they released me when I had a little more muscle tone, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15. I have a very violent past. And, and honestly, I almost want to turn the cameras off. I, I've been fantasizing about finding this guy. No words spoken, just bones broken. See, that rhymes. I can't identify. I, it's difficult for me to identify with thieves. Do you understand that that's the judgment that Jesus Christ is talking about in Matthew 7 for me not to do? Don't ever think for a second. I'm not saying this guy shouldn't be held accountable, but don't ever for a second Josh, think you're better than that man. Not for a second. For I'm a wicked man. 
I'm going to judge accurately. I'm going to show mercy and grace. There's four twos. There's God's standard. There's man's standard. When we judge according to God's standard, we realize that we sit in a huddle infinitely separated from God, huddled up with humanity and humanity's collective wickedness. The other twos are this. You have two standards, you have two roads, you have two wills, and you have two buildings. We'll talk about a couple of those twos on Sunday. I encourage you, invite your family, your friends, guys, and I want to end on time, so I'm going to end before I'm over time right now. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Lord, I, I do pray that we would have that, a, a supernatural help, a supernatural revelation of who we really are so that we can identify with the reality of our poverty and spirit. We're poor. We can purchase no righteousness of our own. But you purchased it on the cross so that we may partake of your nature. As the apostle Peter said, through these very great and precious promises, we have become partakers of the divine nature escaping the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Therefore, make every effort to add to our faith all of those wonderful things of love and goodness and kindness. And Lord, I pray that you would be merciful to us in our fallen natures, as you already have been, but please pour out your spirit upon us once more. And I pray for this weekend, Lord. Please humble us and according to your great mercy, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, we ask. Save people according to the power of your gospel. And as we celebrate all that you've done here in this local church, may that be a small reflection of the great glory that you have throughout the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys, and we'll see you Sunday at 10 a.m.